invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. We'll be starting a series in Exodus for a few weeks together. Originally, we had scheduled a sermon from Pastor Dave on the book of Job. We're going to do one sermon on the book of Job, so you've got to come next week to get that. He and his family are in uh, Texas this weekend for a, a, a funeral for a friend of theirs, and so they will be back with us uh, Monday evening, but we'll continue to pray for them. So here today, we enter into the book of Exodus. We enter the world of Exodus, and we find that a primary, if not the primary theme of the Bible has to do with this exodus from slavery to freedom. God bringing flourishing for his people through oppression and persecution, another theme. We see a deliverer is raised up to pass through waters of judgment, and those with him are saved, another theme. We see in Moses, as the head goes, so goes the body. You'll hear that time and again in this series. As it is with Moses, so it will be with Israel. In the same way as it is with Jesus, so it will be for his body, the church. So, in our reading and preaching of the book of Exodus over the next weeks and couple of months together, these themes will be ringing out true week in and week out in effort to strengthen us in our service to our deliverer, who was Jesus Christ. Will you join me with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us yourself through your Son, who is the very Word of God, the living Word. Would you soften our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes to behold Jesus more clearly in these, your scriptures, that in the beholding we might see him as beautiful, and we might be changed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the good thing about starting the book uh, in Exodus here in chapter 1, verse 1, is that it carries on right where we left off in Joseph's story. Here's where the book of Exodus begins. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, and then he, the na they're named, 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. The verse 6, then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Open up this new book here in Exodus. What we see is that God is still at work through his chosen people. His people who were sold into slavery, that Joseph, by his brothers. Joseph's heritage is now being lost over generations here. The, the Egyptians that he saved now will forget about him. And the next generation of jo Joseph's descendants, they will become slaves. Chapter 1, verse 8 reads this way. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. The king of Egypt is threatened. He brings about opposition and persecution for the Hebrews, the descendants of Jacob, followers of God's way. But what do we see happening to God's people as oppression increases? What do we see as persecution burns hot? Verse 12 of chapter 1. But the more they were oppressed, 
the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They were strong. Seven times in these opening verses, God's people are described as flourishing. They're fulfilling the command that God gave to Adam and Eve, to, then to Noah, then to Abraham, and on and on. That command to be fruitful and multiply. In the midst of great persecution, God's people multiply. They become fruitful. Seven times in these verses. So a couple of themes we hit on right away in the book of Exodus. The first thing here is, is that God is the God of history. He's redeeming his people. He's renewing his creation throughout all generations, just as he promised. Joseph is now gone, but what is God doing? He raises up a new Joseph, who will then be given for the life of the world. So we see God as the God of history. These opening sequences here in, in Exodus 1, we see that God is still sovereign over his story. Secondly, we see that suffering not only produces character and character produces hope, but we see that God uses suffering, oppression, and persecution to do what to his people? To grow his people. As the old saying goes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God's redemption moves from slavery to freedom, but it goes the way of suffering to glory, of death to resurrection. Suffering will bring about growth in God's people. If it were true of his Lord, of his son, would it not, on our Lord, would it not be true of us? Now, having said that, we're not going to stand up here and tell you that suffering is to be sought after for suffering's sake, or that suffering should just be endured with a, a grin and bear it kind of attitude. No, it's suffering. Persecution is difficult. It hurts. So we weep with. We stand with those who are persecuted, and we stand firm, and we trust continually that as, when all seems contrary, as it does in Exodus 1, when all seems contrary to God's grace and goodness, we trust that if there's persecution, God is growing his church. God will grow his church. But that fruitfulness always comes at a cost. Chapter 1, verse 13, so they, the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Sevenfold oppression. Whereas it was earlier sevenfold words describing their fruitfulness and multiplication, here we have sevenfold words given about oppression, suffering, and persecution. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra, the other Pua, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. They're under bondage. Egyptian slavery. When the Hebrews are freed and God gives them the law at Sinai, much ink is used to work against this kind of slavery. The slavery that the Israelites experienced once they are freed, God bans by his law, lest in the freedom for the Hebrews, unless they become Egyptians in how they treat other people. Not only were Israelites being worked to death here, they were not able to worship 
in the way that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on worshipped. There was no Sabbath rest given. There was no altar offered to give sacrifice. Guard and ritual worship and tithes to be given to the Lord were not allowed. And beyond that, they were being enslaved to death. What do we say about the king of Egypt here? What do we say about the Pharaoh? Well, he's ruling as a tyrant, isn't he? He's ruling out of fear. He's slaying newborn boys, and he's sparing the girls. Now, why would he only slay the boys and spare the girls? Can you think of a better way to incorporate a people into your own people? I tell you what, when a generation of males is done away with, all of a sudden the Egyptian males look pretty attractive. It's not just to kill the young boys, it's to incorporate a people into their own lifestyle, their own livelihood. They, he wants the Hebrews to become Egyptians. So not only are the males threatened here, but the women are threatened as well. The bride of God, his people, is threatened. And how do his faithful people treat a tyrant king? What have we seen throughout the book of Genesis? When a tyrant is ruling, how do the righteous treat him? Deception. Verse 22, oh, sorry, verse 17, these are the midwives that he's talked to. The midwives feared God, did not do as the king commanded of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the Pharaoh asks why they've done this. Verse 19, the midwives said Pharaoh, to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to catch them. Right? They, they had their, their, their mitt was on, their catching gear was on, but they couldn't get there in time. The babies were born. That's what they said. Is that true? Well, the, the text tells us that the, the Hebrew uh, midwives were sparing them. This Shifra, her name is pretty. That's what it means. And Pua, her name means smells good. These Hebrew midwives fear God more than they fear the tyrant king. So in the same way that Abraham did, in the same way that Jacob did, in the same way that Joseph did, God's righteous servants deceive a tyrant ruler and God's people are spared. Though the threat still remains. The midwives have done their part, but look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So the threat remains for every Hebrew male child. The, the bride of God is still threatened. And what I want us to see here in, in, in this first chapter, this, this text and the life of Moses foreshadows, foretells what the life of Israel will be. How do we see that here? Well, what is the, what is the, the tyrant king doing? He's shedding innocent blood and casting them into the Nile. Do you remember what the first plague upon Egypt is? The Niles to turn to blood. Red with the blood of the innocent. Egypt's source of life and flourishing the Nile becomes a stench littered with death. That's the first plague of God's wrath. The Nile is turned red with blood. In an eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth society, this is the just reward for Egyptian wickedness. The Nile itself is turned to blood. And more than this, remember uh, Egypt's demise in pursuit of freed Israel? How were the, this, the, 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 the military, how was the military of Egypt destroyed? What, what happened to them? They were washed. They were drowned in the waters. 
as the children of Israel were sought to be drowned by this tyrant king. Here in Exodus 1, Hebrews are delivered. They flourish and they grow strong. Now, of course, stepping back, if we think of our scripture reading, when we read the story of Moses, our, our, our imaginations run right to the story of Jesus, don't they? Because he was, he was threatened in the same way. Infant children are threatened. Sons of Israel are killed. Though at that time, Jesus is spared. So we see not only does the life of Moses foreshadow what Israel will go through. Of course, the life of Moses tells us exactly what we should see from God's son, Jesus Christ. As was said of Jesus Christ in our scripture reading, it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And so God does that here for his own people, a redeemer he calls out of Egypt. Chapter 2, verse 1, the text read for us this morning. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Of the names listed in the first lines of our book, Levi pops up here. This child is linked to Levi, one of Jacob, one of Israel's sons, the child of priestly lineage. When we get to Exodus chapter 6, verse 40, we find out that the, the, this woman that's referred to here, she has a name, and her name is Jochebed. That's the name of one of Levi's daughters. And this woman named Jochebed gives birth to Moses, to Aaron, and we find out also to a daughter named Miriam. Now, as deliverance comes after three days, Moses is hidden for three months. From birth, he was recognized as good. It's a throwback. It's a callback to creation days where each day is doxologized as good, good, good. So this child born to Jochebed is good. We see this because we see that Exodus is a new creation for God's people to multiply and to flourish in. It's the story of God's people being taken hold of in their bondage. God takes hold of them. And he doesn't just free them. What he does is he breaks his people down even further as we have this persecution by the Egyptians. The people are broken down. But he breaks them down in the same way Joseph was broken down. He breaks them down in order to recreate them into a new people, into a more glorious people. What we see happening later in the book of Exodus with each of those plagues, what God is doing is God is decreating the kingdom of Egypt. Each of those plagues is a decreation of what God had given and done. He's undoing his grace and mercy in the wrath of his just condemnation. God is going to raise up a redeemer who will accomplish this new creation, through whom he will accomplish this new creation. Look at verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. What do we see here? But from creation days called good, we enter a scene that's familiar to us. Doesn't the language here bring up images of the flood? It would help 
if the, the Hebrew word translated basket in our texts, you know what it should be translated, don't you? Ark. The only other time that Hebrew word occurs is in the story of Noah. It's an ark that she puts her child into. When the waters threaten to overwhelm and drown, God provides an ark. And those who are in the ark find their salvation in God's grace. So we have here for Moses uh, the story of Noah unfolding before us, right? Not only is it an ark, but, but it's been daubed, uh, daubed with uh, bitumen and, and pitch. That's the same way that Noah constructed the ark there. So again, just pointing out some imagery here that there's a new creation, there's a new Noah, there's a new Joseph. All of these images that we've read about and studied in the book of Genesis are coming now to fruition here in the life of Moses, God's chosen redeemer, miraculously spared. And the imagery multiplies it here. How would this deliverer be saved but by passing through waters of judgment, safe upon the ark of God's salvation? Later on, he will pass through waters with God's people. Those who attach themselves to God's deliverer will be saved through the waters. Those who reject and threaten God's redeemer will be uh, drowned in the flood waters. Moses is saved here as he enters the waters of judgment on the ark of God's salvation. Verse 5 and 6, we read on. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the ark among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. The princess of Egypt finds God's deliverer. She protects God's deliverer. The princess whose father threatened an entire people takes pity on this child. This Egyptian becomes the redeemer's, the, 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 his defender, his protector, his provider. Isn't that fascinating? The enemies actually come to be the protector of God's redeemer. We see that later in King David's life when he finds a refuge with the Philistines for a bit. We see the Jews, when they're scattered throughout, uh, in the exile throughout the world, the, the, the nations are the ones that are protecting them. We find Jesus in his birth, that he finds refuge in Egypt. So throughout redemptive history, God uses the nations to protect his people. And how do we find God's deliverer at age three months? God's deliverer is what? Is, is weak here. He's oppressed. He's helpless. And what's he doing, this deliverer? He's crying. He's crying out. So we find the Hebrews, the Israelites, throughout the book of Genesis, time and again, they are weak. They are oppressed. They are helpless. And they cry. They cry out to God. So this is perhaps the theme of the book of Exodus. What happens to Moses will happen to Israel. Or more broadly speaking, what happens to the head will happen to the body. As with the head, so with the body. We see Moses here. What is the water described as? What's in there? Reeds? Yes. He's saved by passing through the sea of reeds. Twice it's mentioned. And later on, how is he saved? What water does he pass through? The Red Sea. But you know what that red is really translated as? 
the reed sea. Passing through the sea of reeds, he's saved once again. But not only him, initially Moses is saved by passing through this sea of reeds, but later on Israel will be saved by passing through the sea of reeds. As with the head, so with the body. Verse 7 and following. Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. It's beautiful irony, isn't it? This mother who gave birth to this threatened child is now being paid by the princess of Egypt to nurture, to nurse, to raise her own child. Now later, when Israel, the Hebrews are freed, who will support them? Who will give them all of the riches they could ever dream of? Who would do that except Egypt themselves? The enemies are plundered in the support of God's people. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him up out of the water. It's a story that we're familiar with throughout scriptures that there's the, a child threatened, or the lack of a child is threatening the end of the sea line. But here there's a miraculous birth here. The birth of this child is to lead to the deliverance of God's people, as it was for Isaac's unlooked-for birth from Abraham. So with Samson and his impossible birth. So with Samson and his miraculous birth. And yes, our Lord Jesus, born of a virgin, born under the threat of death, the miraculous birth of God's deliverer leads to the salvation of God's people. So when given to the princess, God's deliverer is given the name Moses. Why? Because she drew him out of the water. She names him Draw Out. This child is adopted into the royal family, becoming a prince of Egypt. He is to become a new Joseph in the new Pharaoh's court. He is precursor to Daniel, who rules as second in command in Nebuchadnezzar's court. This one was drawn out of the waters of judgment, out of the waters of death, and he ascends to a throne as the one adopted, as the son adopted into royal service. Moses, drawn out from God's people to save God's people. Of course, soon in our reading, God's people will be drawn out of bondage and thrust into freedom. They will be drawn out of the waters of judgment at the Reed Sea to inherit a land promised for life and flourishing. So from generations of Hebrew descendants, the one true deliverer will be drawn out from this lineage, from this seed line. Moses always points us to Jesus Christ. What happens to Moses will happen to God's people in the same way that what happens to Jesus will happen to us his body. Refuge for the Hebrews was found in attaching themselves to God's deliverer, their redeemer. And so it is for us. As the head goes, so goes the body. We, the body of Christ, must follow our head, who is Jesus Christ. Through his suffering, 
to his glory, through his death to his resurrection, through his bondage to his flourishing in freedom. And for that, we too must be drawn out. We are descendants of Moses, and we too must be drawn out from our sin, from our self-absorption, from our rebellion, from our rejection. Moses was raised up to draw out Israel from slavery to freedom, from false Egyptian worship to the true worship of the triune God. See, freedom is granted not to just cast off all restraints and to do as we will, but freedom is granted that we might orient ourselves to the source of that freedom, to, the, to pursue that which is good, true, and beautiful. Why were the Hebrews freed? What was Moses saying time and again? We must, draw, we must be drawn out from this bondage. Why must we be drawn out? To do what? To worship. To worship. To pursue life in God. To pursue life in His Word. To pursue life in the world that He creates anew. We must be drawn out from ourselves. We must be drawn into a story of our Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ. This is the form of salvation that Paul describes to the Colossian church. Paul writes this, he says, that he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We must be drawn out of our own kingdoms of sin and self-absorption and transferred in the kingdom of his beloved Son. The Hebrews could not draw themselves out of slavery. Moses was helpless to draw himself out of his ark. Enemies were in, who were enslaved to their rebellion and wickedness, they could not draw themselves out of that slavery to wickedness. Except what? Except God. Unless God would draw out each and every one of them. And that, simply put, is the story of Exodus. It's God drawing out of darkness into light. It's God drawing his people out of slavery into his glorious freedom. So the good news that we declare week in and week out here, today and every week, is what the church has always declared, that salvation is found in God's only rescuer, in God's given redeemer, in God's beloved son. See, God's deliverer is come to grant us freedom, and freedom in Jesus Christ. As it was with Moses, so it was with God's people. As it is with Jesus, so it is with us. Which must mean that we in Christ are free. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to guilt and shame. We are free. Free to worship our triune God through Jesus Christ. Free to pray and be heard. Free to serve and receive blessing. But again, there's always a cost. There will be oppression. There will be suffering for all who follow Jesus. As the head goes, so goes the body. See, Jesus was not drawn out from the waters of judgment finally and fully, was he? He was given no ark of salvation upon the cross, but rather he was drowned in the waters of God's just wrath against his sinful humanity. This Jesus descended the sea of condemnation and made the tomb his three-day home. But Jesus did not remain there. 
Jesus himself was drawn out from the grave. The tomb became a womb. The risen and resurrected body of Jesus, the first fruits of our new creation in this world. As the theme was sung throughout the life of the Hebrews, throughout the book of Exodus and throughout all of Scripture, indeed, the song of God's people would be our deliverers coming, our deliverers standing by. He will give himself. He will never break his promise. He will give himself that we might forsake slavery if sin to enter into freedom of life. And now, this side of the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, our song is the same. In Jesus Christ, our deliverer has come. In him, we are drawn out of sin, of Satan's power, of sickness, and even death. We are drawn into his life now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Our deliverer is come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you do give us your word. And now we ask your blessing upon us in the hearing and the receiving of it. We confess, Lord, that we don't always see Jesus clearly and that we don't respond as you would have or see fit. So we pray your patience with us, your grace and mercy to wash over us, to cleanse us, that we might indeed inhabit the life of Jesus who draws us out and into freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.